Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Savio Clemente coaches cancer survivors to overcome the confusion and gain the clarity needed to get busy living in mind, body, and spirit. Savio is a board-certified wellness coach, a number one best-selling author, syndicated columnist, podcaster, stage three cancer survivor, and founder of The Human Resolve. Savio, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks so much, Andrea, for having me. I really am so looking forward to this conversation. So take us back to the beginning of your cancer story. Where where did it start? Yeah, you know, it started in July of 2014. Um, I was taking a trip with a friend. We went to Amsterdam and London. Uh, and I noticed that um, my sheets at night when I woke up the next morning were, were drenched. I just chalked it up to, you know, the weather or just something I ate. Um, And then I got home and I noticed periodically that my sheets were once again starting to be drenched. I'm like, this is odd. And then I started noticing um, like my stomach started getting bigger and bigger. I am a male. I'm a cisgendered male, so I'm not pregnant. So that's definitely not not happening. You're not a perimenopausal woman. No, no, I'm definitely not either. Uh, And then, so I went to go see a naturopath. So I've been seeing this naturopath for about eight, nine years. He basically analyzes my blood. He's really good at what he does. And he said to me, Savio, uh, he's like, I, I, this is a mystery to me. And usually nothing's a mystery to him. He's like, it could be like three different things. I don't know what to tell you, but I really think you need to go and see and seek mainstream medicine. So this is a little bit of context. I was just someone who saw my doctor if I needed to, but I also was someone who never even took aspirin. I just, not that I don't believe in it. I just never needed to or never did. Uh, I only took vitamins and things of that nature. Um, And so I went to go get a sonogram. They wouldn't let me leave the office for like an hour and a half. After an hour and a half, they told me I needed to get a family member to come pick me up. I'm like, what are you talking about? I have my own car here. They're like, no, that's what you need to do. I went to the hospital and I saw a doctor there. And within an hour and a half, they admitted me to the fifth floor. Uh, I was uh, given a nephrostomy tube because they had to distend about five liters of fluid from my (sighs) abdomen. I was in the hospital bedridden, bedridden for a week. I could not move out of my bed. And then I was in the hospital for an additional week. Uh, I was told uh, about three, uh, about two days later, after they did the nephrostomy tube, that I did in fact have diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Um, and then I was told three days before I left of those 14 days that I was in the hospital that I needed to start my first round of RCHOP chemotherapy. Uh, so for me, I didn't have a choice, um, although I did have a choice in the matter of not wanting to do chemo. Although the medical director said, if you don't do it, I don't really think the outcome will be good. Um, And I made a decision to follow what I call the middle way, the middle path. Um, So I did a combination of chemo for the for the next four months. And I did some integrated modalities. Wow. It sounds very similar to my sister's journey and just how quickly it happened. And you went through the ER first. At what point did an oncologist come in and who was with you? Who was that person that you called? Yeah. So my dad is the one who picked me up 
um, and I told him after they said to me I needed to be put into the fifth floor. And then uh, a day later, they transferred me to what they called the seventh floor, which was the cancer floor. So I had a kind of an inkling. Um, I, you know, to be truthful, I'm just someone who always did things on my own. I rarely relied on anyone for just a lot of things in my life. I think the only people I've ever asked anything monetarily from are my parents. Um, beyond that, um, just in terms of just support in general. Um, however, uh, with the situation, um, you know, my sister worked close by to the hospital. So she came visit me. She was the first person I told and she literally broke down. It was like a reverse um, reversal. I had to support her in that moment. Um, and I really relied on a few things, um, just my inner grit and perseverance. I've always been sort of that way inclined. And also my deep um, faith in something bigger than myself. People call it God, spirituality, whatever it was, whatever it is, it's something I've always relied on throughout most of my life. Wow. I have to ask, where do you think it comes from that you don't rely on people? Yeah. You know, I, you know, being a coach, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not a therapist, but a coach is a lot of stuff that happens or bubbles up in terms of trauma and, and whatnot. I can't say that that was a result of that. I think for me, just the way my life is and the, the way my life was, I was just a very quiet, inquisitive, curious type of person. And I just always sort of realized at a very young age that I needed to figure things out on my own, that it's great that people can show me and do things for me, but I've always just had this inclination that I need to explore the world and um, figure it out. Um, with myself. So I was someone who also traveled six continents by myself, fearless. Um, it's just something that I think is just innate in me. You know, if you read many contexts and different belief systems and, you know, spirituality, one might say it might be karmic, it might be past lives, it, whatever the case may be, it is, it is definitely something that um, is, uh, is unique to me. So did you tell friends at all? Yeah. So I told one good friend via text, that I was in the hospital. By text. Yeah, I told a good friend via text. I was in the hospital in. So I I live in Westchester County, New York. So okay. he he knew of the hospital. He did come visit me, and then he told a couple of other people. Uh, I didn't tell him not to. He just took it upon himself to. So I got a couple of calls and a couple of text messages, um, but those are the only few people I told. I am not someone who overshares on social media, so you would never find me doing something like that. Um, it, I, I think to a large degree, I was, I was, there's a lot of shame involved in, in, in my cancer, uh, truthfully. Why? Um, Why? cause I felt in that moment, I felt like, um, not that I caused it or I did something to deserve it, but that, um, it was like the only visual in my head was that book, um, a scarlet letter with Hester Prynne. Yeah. I felt like a scarlet letter, like the big C was, was now part of my identity. And I, um, I you, know, to, you know, truth be told, I, I, um, I just found it very shameful. I found it like a, like a deficit on my, you know, on my being. So you are a coach. So where do you think that came from? I'm really intrigued because it yeah. doesn't sound like anyone shamed you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I became a coach after my cancer ordeal. Um, so um, in, in unpacking and doing a lot of inner work and a lot of men's work and a lot of just emotional work. 
I think it really came from this feeling that I created of not wanting to be perfect, but wanting to be seen as someone who always has it together. Mm. Uh, I think I relished in that ident identity. Um, I have not, I'm very open and honest now since cancer about some of the things that uh, I'm not really good at. So I was never a braggart. I was more of a um, making sure things look great on the surface type of a person. Um, I think it was a way to protect myself. And I think it was also another way um, to, um, I, you know, to have people like me. I think I had this, um, you know, perception that if, if I was put together, then people would like me. Hmm. You're the only son, right? I'm the only son. I have two older sisters. And I grew up in an Asian Indian household, which now it's changing somewhat. But in the beginning or when I was growing up, they basically revered male boys. <laughs> especially the young ones, they actually pampered them. So um, yeah, that, that's what happened. Do you think, I promise I'll get off this topic. Uh, do you think that you were pampered because you were the youngest, but you were the only boy. So do you think that there was sort of a um, implied sense of because you're a guy, you can't express any sort of weakness. I'm just curious. Yeah, I think a lot of it is that way inclined. My dad also has a past in history where both his parents unfortunately died when he was young. Um, oh. And him and his brothers and sisters really became their own caregivers. Uh, they had to take care of themselves. So I think part of it is, is, is sort of that story, that thread line is there. Um, but I also think, and just to be totally candid and honest, I'm an openly gay male. And I just was a very sensitive um, feeling child who um, was just overly observant <laughs> and um, mm. nothing really passed my gaze. And I would remember things and I would experience things. And so I think a lot of it was also sort of, you know, and I, I understand my dad's story, but I think a lot of it was also being told because of his culture and also because of his upbringing, you needed to be a man, you needed to do this as part of a man. So there was a very predetermined type of way of being that yeah. I always uh, riled against. Wow, okay, thank you. Thanks for humoring me on all those questions. <laughs> so you mentioned, I think you mentioned chemotherapy. Tell us what you were in, first of all, you were in the hospital for a long time, essentially, right at the beginning. But tell us about the chemotherapy, what that entailed and what that was like for you. Sure. I, I remember the conversation. It was three days before I got out. So it was day 12 of my stay in the hospital. Uh, and um, I wasn't saying no to chemo. I just remember saying, can I speak to someone about this? And I remember the medical director came to me and we had a candid conversation. And she goes, um, I'll be honest with you. I don't care what the F, she actually used the word F. I don't care what the F you, did, you do. But I'm telling you right now, if you do not start chemo, you might not be here. She yeah. actually looked at me deadpan and she said to me, she goes, I don't care what you do outside of this hospital. You do whatever you want. But in this hospital right now, this is what you need to really do. And I really, Andrea, really trusted my inner self, that quiet space. Um, and that quiet space said to me, you need to find the middle way. And so I promised myself I would do that. And so I just remember them giving it to me, I think like eight or nine hours later. And they tell me a couple of things. They said, one, if you feel really, if you feel like uh, your heart's racing, please let us know. <laughs> that was number one. And they said, uh, if you feel um, something else is happening within your body, um, any imbalances, obviously let us know as well. Um, 
but I'm kind of someone as well that if you tell me certain things, I can prepare for it mentally, emotionally, even psychologically. And so I was kind of ready for the task. I do honestly like a good challenge. And I think to some degree, I changed, I shifted the paradigm to this to treat it like a challenge. Uh, it's a deadly challenge, but it was yeah. a challenge nonetheless. I like that you like to know ahead of time because I'm the same way, because I think you can mentally prepare. But I find, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are, especially with all the people you've met over the years. I find that a lot of doctors do not want to tell you ahead of time because one, they want a baseline. If you have any, you know, adverse events, as they like to call it, hello, side effects. Um, and two, they are afraid of influencing your mind, which could influence your body. So what are your thoughts on that? Physicians not saying a word at all at the beginning. Mm. So a few things. So I, I was given a bone marrow aspiration. I told them, what is this for? Um, they said, we really want to check to see if it's going to affect your brain and, and mm. any of your other motor functions uh, and to see if it, if it you know, metastasized in that sense. Um, second thing is they basically saw me always on my phone because I was always either researching or looking things on the internet. And they basically said to me, don't Google um, and I actually put this in my book. Someone else actually put this in, in the book that I have, one of the people, um, one of my contributors. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, and then when they told me, I just remember not being stoic about it, but I was, um, I was kind of like, okay, so what's, you know, what's next? And they basically said to me, uh, that reaction, we never really see, we see people like falling apart or crying and not that we want you to do that, but, right. and I said, I said to them, I don't, I don't think you kind of know me or understand me. I'm the type of person I'm not falling and breaking apart right now. It's not going to help fix the problem. I need to find a way to fix it. So, or at least do something about it. So thank you for letting me know. And then they also told me this information about harvesting in my sperm and kids. And I remember looking at them and being like, yeah, I, I knew since I was like four years old that I did not want any, any biological kids. So <laughs> you, can, you, you can, you can, you can thank you, but I don't, we don't need to have this conversation because I, I knew at the age of four that I didn't really want to have any kids on my own. Um, and so they were like, look at it be like, this guy is really strange. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I'm glad they talked to you about it because I do know a few men who had, had cancer as a teenager, late, sometimes late teens, so technically an adult, but that wasn't on their radar. They weren't thinking about it and they were not told. Uh -huh. Now, I think that's really changed, but it wasn't something that doctors talked about, at least, you know, in the 1990s, not at all. It's just I, I was told twice. They, they like came a day or two later and asked me again, you sure? And I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm not saying I, I don't want to like adopt a child. I'm not saying that I could be in a relationship with someone and someone could, but biologically, I just know for me, it's not something I, I want. And right. so it wasn't a big deal. How old were you when you were diagnosed? Uh, so let's see, 2014, gosh, it's like seven years. So that's, um, I was, I think 38. Okay. Yeah, yeah about 38. Okay. So how long were the treatments? I think you said four months. And and then what? What was the follow-up? I mean, what what was the rest of it? Sure. So July 14, uh, 2014, I was in the hospital for two weeks and roughly two and a half weeks. But, well, two, but 15 days, let's put it this way. Uh, and then <laughs> I got my first round of chemo. I had to get it every three weeks. It was six rounds of something called R-CHOP. It was like Rituxin, four other 
One of them is called Vin Christine, and it looks beautiful name. It, but it's some red gelatinous thing. And I remember looking at the nurse and saying, that's going to go in me. She goes, oh, that's going to go in you along with some of the other ones. So, so I was in the chemo beds every three weeks for six hours at a time. They said, you needed to have someone pick you up. I'm like, no, I'm good. They're like, sir, you need to have someone pick you up. So my dad would pick me up. Uh, and um, um, I kind of just tried to power through it. Um, in between the three weeks, um, to be really frank and honest, I did integrative modalities. I didn't tell my oncologist that I was doing it because it was my body and I wasn't hurting anyone. And I felt I needed to follow my own truth. So um, what did you do? Give us some examples. Sure. Um, so I'm important <laughs> of my wellness coach. So I'd be very careful if I say I did these. I don't recommend yes, these to anyone. Yes, you Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. totally. Um, so uh, I did something called ozone therapy. So ozone has been used in Germany for over 60 years. Um, basically, it's just another O2 sort of gas that's added. And so what they would do is um, there's different methods to get ozone. You can get it rectally. You can get it um, by actually taking blood out of, out, of, out of your body, putting in the centrifuge and adding ozone and re um, and putting it back into your body. I didn't do that, obviously, because I have a blood cancer. But I did something where they ozonated an IV drip and they basically gave me an IV drip. So it's about 45 minutes to an hour. Oh, thank goodness, um, because the other two sound awful. Yeah. <laughs> the other yeah. two methods of delivery if you will <laughs> yeah i mean i definitely was going to do that that um yeah was going to do that one uh i also um researched and and looked up um passages in the quran there's a passage about the black seed oil that it, it can kill anything except death uh i also did um black, like therapy black what um the black seed oil huh okay yeah well, yeah it's a it's a holy apparently it's a holy seed uh, mm -hmm. I also um, bought a small little ozone generator and I would ozonate my water every day. I would drink at least like six to six to eight glasses of water a day uh, that's been ozonated. Um, I also, so I'm a longtime meditator. I've been meditating for over uh, 20 years, even before cancer. Uh, so I relied on that. Um, I did affirmative prayer. Um, I also um, did, um, uh, I also did um, acupuncture. I did acupressure. I did massage. A lot of it, it, people will say it costs a lot of money. It does, but it's either that or death. And for me, I didn't mind. I treated my cancer like it was a challenge and mission. And I wanted to just say I did everything I could. Oh, I also did energy medicine as well. Um, so I did a whole panoply of things. Wow. How did you how did you even know where to find that stuff? I mean, you said you've been meditating for a long time. So that was already part of your practice. But how did you even know where to get like the oxygen stuff. I mean, I wouldn't even know where to, where to get yeah. that. So it's interesting. I had a friend who was doing ozone therapy because he um, had um, he had a tick bite and he had um, other, he had like vertigo. And so he told me something about ozone. This was maybe about two years prior to my cancer diagnosis. And he was going to get this done because apparently that was the only thing that was helping him. He was trying so many other things, uh, vertigo, he was vertigo. Um, and so um, I knew about ozone and then I did my own, you know, you know, research. I found competent doctors, medically board certified doctors who did ozone therapy in the county and state that I live in. Unfortunately, wow. uh, one was only a 12 minute drive from my house. So I didn't have to go really that far. Oh, that's great. Uh, and the doctor was very good at what he's a John Hopkins doctor. He saw the big stack <laughs> of medical report based upon my 15-day stay at the hospital. And he says, you know, these are your options. You, you know, it's really up to you what you want to do. 
that was that. The rest of it was just research. I created a Google alert. A anything relating to my cancer, I would get information about it. I, I okay, read that, I'm going to stop. That is so creative. If, if you yeah. can handle the data, if you can handle it, because oh, I, I can it is it recommended that everyone would be able to do that. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it would be overwhelmed for a lot of people, but that's a really clever idea. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone creating a Google alert for their type of cancer. I created a Google alert for my cancer. So I, I got stories, anything from the medical aspect of it to someone who created a charity to someone, unfortunately, who passed away. I just wanted to know, I want to have context on, on all this. Um, acu, um, um, uh, you know, like acupuncture and all that. I've, I've been doing it for a while, so that's not a big deal. Red light therapy. Uh, before cancer, I was kind of like a burgeoning biohacker. Uh, I became full throttled, like, <laughs> full throttled, like Dave Asprey, watch out. Uh, oh, really? Actually, okay. Actually, like it was, it, it, it got actually that, that I ended up getting a certification from his um, um, Human Potential Institute. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a biohacker <laughs> square. <laughs> um, and really the rest of it was just asking. Every day I took one step forward to trying to find, finding out the truth. I believe the truth, there's a larger, there's a big T in the word truth and a smaller T in the word truth. And I wanted to find the big T. So I just searched. What was the big T for you? The big T is I come to the realization. So just some context here beyond my own cancer. Uh, I'm also a syndicated columnist. So I've interviewed over 175 cancer survivors, different types of cancers throughout. And that was the, the premise for the book that I wrote. And in that couple of things that sort of, I saw a thread line and the thread line was as much as the physical body is diseased, there's other stuff happening like mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually that you have to unpack and you have to be ready to unpack those things because those things then end up becoming um, a receptor or those things end up becoming a drumbeat for those other things to fall into line. So as much as I've lost people to cancer and I've lost many people to cancer, I do know one truth to be true from all my interviews and, and my book. Cancer is not an automatic death sentence. There's people like myself who have survived it sure. and we are here to lead the way. And that's the greater truth. What was your worst moment during that time? I remember it very specifically. I was on that fifth floor that, that night and I remember crying. I don't cry in front of, I just, I just don't in front of people. I've done it on myself. I've done it in closed rooms. And I remember crying in the nurse and you know, my thought, it was really, really sad now in, in reflection at the time. I wasn't scared about dying. Like it wasn't like I have a deep faith in this idea of the afterlife or this deep faith mm -hmm. in what may happen. Because I, I, I've, I grew up Catholic, but I've explored various belief systems. I've been open to various things and I've seen evidence, like real evidence in my life for it to be true. So I wasn't scared about like what's going to happen to me. I was actually more afraid of what the end result is. Like, what's the repercussions? What What is the burden that I'm leaving? You for, know, what is the, your family? My, yeah, my family. I mean, there's like some, I was part of a business that failed. And so there was some like financial, you know, responsibility there. Um, there was sort of just this other sort of feeling. I mean, I pushed envelopes and in pushing envelopes, like Brene Brown, one of my favorite authors mentions, if you're going to be in the arena, you're going to get knocked down and you're going to get, like you're going to get things are going to happen to you. And I remember just crying with, you know, with the nurse and she's like, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. That's all she could say. Cause, because she's probably seen death more, more than anyone else. So Savio, you told us your worst moment. What was your best moment? 
I think my best moment is that cancer taught me that I could own my own vulnerability. It sounds cliched, but it really did. Because from that experience, I became a coach. I got my board certification. I've interviewed cancer survivors. I've written a book about that experience. And instead of seeing that scarlet letter with the big C, I now see it as a cape. And the cape is allowing me to nice. um, help other people. And it's not cliche at all. I, I don't think so. Not, not one bit. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think most people say it helped them figure out their strength that they had, that they didn't realize it even existed. So I love that it helped you express your vulnerability. Love it. It did. What do you wish you had known at the very beginning, day one, right, right before that worst moment? What do you wish you had known? Maybe the strength in numbers. I, as much as I got through cancer on my own, and as much as I treated it like a challenge, I, mean, I was still working out while my hair was, my eyebrows. And no one tells you, by the way, uh, if you're an Indian male who's hairy, who's been hairy all their life, that hair leaves your complete body where you become, oh, yeah. where you feel like a prepubescent pre boy. I felt like, a pre I was like, what is going <laughs> on? I mean, it was crazy. But, so I just um, interviewed a woman who said the same thing and she was just like, they don't tell you about the pubes, the pubes. No, they don't tell you anything. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So um, <laughs> it was just, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was a lot. Savio, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Uh, I think one of the misconceptions with healthcare is that they think um, like one uh, allays a lot of power and responsibility on the doctor, uh, that it becomes almost like the Wizard of Oz, Oz in the Wizard of Oz, and there isn't a shared um, communication with the patient. Like the patient almost feels like what you say is is what needs to be done. I think there needs to be more con conversation. And more to some degree, and, and as much as I'm board certified, uh, more validation with other forms of complementary or integrative treatments. Um, because I think in order to treat the whole person, you, you, you need to also treat the individual parts of the person as well. Yeah. That first part of your answer I find really intriguing. I think it really speaks to how different care is, not just in cancer, but healthcare across the U.S. from not just state to state, but city to city. And because I've had so many people say that they, that too much was on them, that the entire decision, here, here are your choices, pick one. And they could not get any input from their doctor, you know, and I think this all goes back to medical school. It really does, you know, so, um, and, and it, I, it needs to be a, a shared, you know, discussion and a shared responsibility and, hundred percent on the integrative medicine. And and if you also believe, as I do, that we are human being and we are, you know, spiritual beings having a human experience, then you need to treat beyond the physical, you need to treat those other parts of the human experience as well. Yeah, I agree. I know you didn't really rely much on your friends, but what was their reaction? Uh, you know, they were just concerned. They wanted to help me out. Um a lot of them said, what can I do? And I didn't really know what to tell them to do. Um, in some of the people sharing it in, in my book, a lot of them mentioned a good point. They're like, when you're at the doctors, you need a scribe. 
You yes. need someone to write stuff down so that you don't get overwhelmed. And then it makes them feel like they're doing something to help you. And I was just constantly saying no. The only one I said yes to was my dad and my mom cooking for me because she's like, oh, because I lost like 13 pounds when I got out of the hospital. And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to get <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, most of them obviously asked me how I was doing and the texts and whatnot, but I was just like living life the way I wanted to live. I actually put everything else aside, even my like work. And I just focused like a laser beam on my health and well-being. I wanted to figure out, um, and I remember saying to myself, so I got diagnosed in July of 2014. I did um, six rounds of chemo. I did those alternative meds. And I remember going to the doctor's office December 20th, 2014. So about four and a half, five months later. And I remember just saying, because that was when I was supposed to do my scan, my first scan. And I, I remember him saying, um, I, I remember myself saying to myself that I did my part. Like literally I felt I, I left no stone unturned. And I said, whatever happens, happens. And I just remember him telling me there's no evidence of disease, NED, and you are considered in remission. And so my story goes, I was able to quote unquote beat it in four and a half months. I'm seven and a half years in remission. And, but I'm, I'm also a realist. I know it could always come back, but I'm doing my, my, my part in making sure I do whatever I need to do. Wow. It really, it sounds like it. Wow. Are you ready? for the Thriver rapid fire questions. I am, let's do it. <laughs> beach, desert, or mountains? Um, beach, uh, desert, or mountains, a beach. Beach boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. Oh, unexpected. Okay, <laughs> would not have pegged you. And you, you. There was no hesitation either. What is one word that best describes you? Curious. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Um, uh, uh, up to the mountain. By um, I oh my gosh, Patty, oh my God, Patty, someone I forget her last name. Not Patty Labelle. No, uh, Patty, someone. How about the last meal you want to eat? Um, wow, uh, I would probably say Shake Shack. Shake really. Shack. <laughs> Are they just in the Northeast? Are they just? Sorry, say again. Are they just in the Northeast? Because they're definitely not in the West Coast. Are they? Oh, they they must be here because I there's like three of them around me. (laughs) I can't escape escape them. (laughs) What would you eat from Shake Shack? Yeah, I would. I would eat their uh, 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 smoke shack. They call it. It has these like hot um, cut up peppers on top. With um, I'm not a big cheese eater, but they do have slices of cheese with the burger. It's hormone free, all that stuff. The buns nice and like crispy, and then I would have the the, the fries, and then I would have a shake as well. Nice. <laughs> and the last person or people you want to see? Last person or people I want to see? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, I would say Oprah or Brene Brown. Oh my gosh. I think that might be my favorite answer ever because no one's ever said that. That's awesome. Yeah. And what about the last words you will speak? Um, it was worth it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Cause I, I might be strange, but I just remember growing up just thinking like, I knew this would be a challenging lifetime. I just did. Uh, I, I mean, I hope I didn't like make it happen, like will it happen, but I just remember thinking to myself, this will be a challenging one. I just had this feeling in my head. So, I mean, life has shown me many challenges, but I feel like 
as long as I try, and as long as I now it, I have a platform to help other people try, that I was going to do that. Hmm. Aside from Cancer U, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And please tell people how they can get in touch with you and how they can find your book. Uh, so I would say Sloan Kettering does an amazing job. Uh, there was they I didn't have a choice in choosing them because I, <laughs> it is what happened. However, in year three, they did partner with the hospital that I was with. So technically, I got care from some of their doctors because I ended up getting an oncologist who then I ended up getting a hematologist who was a blood focused type of um, you know cancer doctor. Yeah. Um, so I would say th uh, they would be the number one source. I would also find a lot of literature and they're really good about data and they're very good about transparency in terms of new uh, findings. So I would definitely say that. And in terms of myself, uh, you can go to my website, uh, thehumanresolve.com. Um, I have a podcast. Um, I have um, you know one-on-one -on -one coaching that I do. And then my book um, with as, as, as well as isurvivedcancer.co. Or, or you can search for I Survived Cancer and here's how I did it on Amazon. And I'm on social media at The Human Resolve on Twitter, Instagram, and on LinkedIn, I'm at Savio P. Clementi. All right, we will put those links in the workshop notes and in the show notes. And thank you so much, Savio, for coming on and sharing your story and for letting me just really probe you with a lot of questions you might not have expected. No, I, I was going to say, you're like, you're like in coach mode. This is, this is what I do with my, <laughs> with my <laughs> I was totally comfortable uh, with the, uh, with the role reversals. Okay, good. All right. All right. Thank you again. Thank you again, Andrea. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories. True stories.